it's been so great to scroll through and find out all the folks that are signed in today. Uh, what a privilege it is to be able to gather this way together and how fun it is for some of us to be able to actually see faces and smiles and uh, to see kids running up to the camera and waving at the other people from our church. I love that. Today, we're going to be looking at overcoming irritations. Interesting to me, as I've mentioned the last two or three weeks, how uh, months ago we planned this series, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in a situation that none of us could have ever predicted <laughs> that we would be in, and yet to find out how apropos these particular topics are. And uh, again, overcoming irritations. I don't know about you, but I think we have found a whole lot of new reasons to be irritated <laughs> when there are so many changes that needed to be made in such a short period of time because of the pandemic that we're all going through today. Uh, we all have our default emotional reactions. And I put out a little poll through our Facebook page last week, and some of the things that people said they are reacting to in this new world of ours include navigating being in very close proximity to one another. Uh, that hasn't happened, of course, with my two girls, my wife and daughter, because they are never annoyed with me ever. <laughs> I hear laughter all the way from the other room on that one. Technology failure, which can become very daunting at times. I can imagine some of the things that could take place as people are watching one of the movies they've been wanting to watch forever and it's a whodunit movie, and finally, the detective is in the room with all the other people, and he says, I know who the killer is, and the killer is in this room, and the killer is, and then a little thing comes up that says, we're sorry that we're unable to stream that video just now. Please try again later. Or how about the disrupted routine? I felt so strange on about Wednesday of this past week because I realized I don't have to get up at the same time because I'm not going to make it to that same coffee shop for the meeting with my buds that I normally do on Wednesday morning. And I felt a little sense of loss there. And it's just not quite the same when we can't follow through on some of the same routines that we've been in the habit of doing leading up to this time when we're sheltering in place. Or how about those loved ones who are very far away and we can't get to them and we're concerned about them and maybe we're worried about them because if something happens to them, we're unable to actually physically get into their space. Those who have lost their ability to make money, that was mentioned as one of the frustrations and perhaps things that we could become tense or upset about. Or how about a dead rodent found in a basement of somebody's house? One person said that they were starting to encounter some symptoms that were similar to another physical ailment they had had some months ago. And that's cause for concern because you think, oh, well, what if it is, and what if I need to try to get medical help? This is not a time when they're wanting a lot of people to make their way to the hospital, because we're trying to make all the room available for people who might need to get in there to be seen because of COVID-19. So these are some very real things that we're dealing with on a daily basis because we're in a new world. We all have certain default emotional reactions. And I don't know about you, but I tend to get a little bit nervous and I go inside myself and I fidget. That's my first indicator that I'm trying to default to some sort of a, an emotional response to what's going on around me. But there are a lot of people, men especially, who tend to have this meat grinder of emotions and what comes out at the other end, even though there may be a myriad of emotions going into the meat grinder, 
what comes out at the other end is simply anger. It's kind of your all-purpose emotion. It's good for everything. And I've noticed that there are a lot of people who have been talking about it in blogs and things that I've been reading from other folks that it's just easy to get annoyed. And that annoyance goes more quickly to anger, especially when there are a lot of things changing than at times when things are fairly routine. So I suspect that all of us at some level are dealing with trying to manage our anger. So we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. First of all, I think it's good for us, especially from a Christian worldview, to think about the theology of our feelings. We might not think about that very much, but from our worldview, there is a good reason why we have feelings, and they're not necessarily bad simply because we have them. It's good for us to understand that God himself has feelings. That's at the root of everything that we're starting to discuss today, because God is our creator, and he created us in his own image. One of the things that makes us human and makes us able to connect with God is the fact that we are given feelings by him and for his good purposes. Jesus experienced all these wonderful feelings. It's amazing the many different feelings that Jesus experienced. For example, he had compassion. He felt anger at times. He felt indignant, especially when some little children were being kept away from him. He felt consumed with passion at times. Sometimes he felt exhausted. He was greatly distressed, sorrowful, deeply depressed at a couple of times that we can read about in scripture. He was greatly grieved in his spirit. He groaned, he sighed, he wept, he sobbed. He was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was amazed one time because he saw somebody who was exhibiting great faith. And he said, nowhere in Israel have I seen anyone with such great faith. Uh, really something when Jesus gets amazed. He was filled with joy many times. And he knew what it felt like to love and even to the point of sacrifice, as we know from the cross. This high priest of ours, referring to Jesus, understands our weaknesses. He faced all the same testings that we do, and yet he did not sin. Here's another thing about our theology of feelings. My feelings are actually a gift from God. Since we humans are created in God's image and in the likeness of God, not physically but spiritually speaking, one of the things that allows us to connect with God are our feelings. He created us to be feeling creatures. Can you imagine life without the ability to feel? I think some psychologists probably have, and psychiatrists have some not very nice uh, names for people who can't feel empathy, for example. There are reasons why we have good feelings, and we're, when we're experiencing those feelings, we're affirmed by God. We can sense his joy and his smile on our lives. When we're doing something that we know would make God smile, there's just this spiritual sense of affirmation. It's like his spirit bears witness with our spirit, and there's this collective yes that goes on inside of us that connects us to God in a very unique and special way. Biblical balance helps us avoid two extremes that we can tend to go through. When I think about the extremes that I've even experienced in my own life, because I have feelings like all human beings, and sometimes the pendulum swings a little wider in the arc than it does to other times. But the two big extremes that a biblical balance helps us achieve keeps us from going on one extreme to the fact that my feelings are the only important thing right now. That oversensitivity to feelings or uh, 
a really hyper emotionalism. That's one extreme. And when somebody is hyper emotional, there's no rational thinking going on. It's all about feelings and they're really not thinking very straight. The other extreme would be extreme stoicism. My feelings aren't important at all. And you just try to shove them down and not experience feelings at all. That can also be equally debilitating and quite dangerous, quite frankly. Somewhere in the middle is where we find ourselves when we're walking with Christ and his spirit is starting to transform our sinful nature into the character qualities that he imputes into us. There's a balance with those two extremes and we find ourselves able to feel, but we're feeling for the right reasons and we're able to identify certain feelings and which feelings may be destructive and which may be constructive. The Psalms and the Proverbs are wonderful gifts to us in God's word because they help us identify feelings and they affirm for us that there were other godly people who felt very deeply like the psalmist. We can see King David sometimes just going through a myriad of different kinds of feelings. There's this chart, and uh, some of you, I hope, can see this. I doubt that many of you can read all of them, especially if you're on a little tiny phone. There are 90 different feelings represented in this chart. I'll just go through a, a small smattering of them. There was abandonment. He felt affection, affliction, agony, alarm, anguish, apathy, awe, boasting, brokenhearted, calling out, comfort, commitment. It just goes on and on. All these things can be found in the Psalms, and it shows us that identifying the feeling was important to King David, and it's important to us as well. By reading the Psalms, sometimes praying them helps us get in touch with what we're feeling. I found myself in times of struggle, reading a psalm, and I can think, David, I feel you, bud. I know where you're coming from. I feel what you're feeling, and I feel sometimes like my enemies are all around me, and they're pressing in on me, and I'm thinking, Lord, how long are you going to wait until you do something about this situation? I'm crying out to you. We get a lot of that in the psalms, but we also are reminded that if we can express those feelings, we're reminded of the perspective that God is still on his throne, and you see that an awful lot in the psalms as well. By the time David talks through his feelings in poetry. He gets through to the end of a psalm and he'll say, but God, you're still God and you're still in control. And because of that, I can still praise you regardless of what's going on around me. And he's reminded that his feelings don't depend on his circumstance. One of the things that we have to find out when we're starting to get in touch with what we're feeling, especially if we're annoyed or irritated or angry, is, is this a real feeling? Or is it imagined? Sometimes we'll feel that something is happening that's way bigger than it really needs to be. Um, as a parent, maybe you've experienced this. I can remember times when my kids were starting to learn to drive and we finally give them enough leash. We'd let out the leash so that we could say, you can go out and you can go to this place with your friends, but we want you back by such and such a time. By the time that time started getting nearer as a parent, we would start to imagine all those terrible things that our kids could be involved in, or we would think they're probably in an accident and they're lying at the side of the road right now. Well, those things might not be happening, but we're starting to ramp ourselves up because we're imagining things that may or may not be taking place. So we have to test ourselves and say, wait a minute, am I imagining reality or is this real? I have to be rational enough to see, is this a real feeling? Is it based on fact? Or is this a feeling that I'm making up because of my own imagination? Let's say that you were in a cabin in the woods and a bear came around the corner as you were on a walk. 
and you started running toward your cabin and you were outrunning the bear, fortunately, because you're really hyped up on coffee and you get safely inside the door of your cabin and you have this great big lock on it and you have a huge beam that you put in place to lock the door in place and you push a couch and a chair in front of the door. So intellectually, now that you're safe inside your cabin, you know rationally, I'm safe, the bear's on the outside, I'm on the inside, he can't get to me, so I know I'm safe, but your heart is still going and you're still imagining all the scary thing that you just went through, so you're still feeling scared. We tend to do that a lot with our feelings. We tend to hang on to them, and it takes a while for that to finally dissipate. Sometimes just taking our pulse, taking a deep breath and saying, wait a minute, rationally, I know intellectually that this is not the case. I need to take a breath and calm myself down and I need to get into the Psalms or read some scripture and remind myself that God is still in control. Anger is, this is some of the descriptions of what anger can be and it can be very detrimental. Anger is destructive to the body. The things that happen physiologically in us when we're angry are very damaging. I had a friend, uh, I used to stand at the sidelines of soccer games when my son was playing soccer when he was younger. And this guy had a pretty short fuse. He was an angry fella by his own admission. I was in the car with him after he had been to the hospital from a heart attack. And my son and this guy's son were going with us down to another state for a tournament. And he got real honest with me in saying that when he was in the hospital, he found himself getting angry because he couldn't control the situation. And he wanted to take out his IV and he was about to check himself out of the hospital prematurely. And one of the nurses came in and she looked him straight in the eye and she said, his name was Tim. She said, Tim, you need to listen to me real carefully. One of the things that got you in this hospital right now is what you're exhibiting. It's your anger. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but you need to calm yourself down because it's the anger in your life that starts to send all these chemicals bombarding your system in such a way that it's not healthy. And you need to find a little different way to calm yourself down and take life as it comes and not build things out of proportion or we're going to see you back in this hospital again and it's going to be a lot sooner than you think. Fortunately for Tim, he had a caring nurse who was able to confront him about one of his great needs. And he said, I had to start learning how to deal with my anger because it's destructive to the body. A tranquil heart is life to the body. So says the scriptures in Proverbs, but passion is rottenness to the bones. And I think that's very true. Anger is also destructive to community, to relationships. You don't have to go very far in your own memory to come up with examples, I'm sure, of people who let their anger get the best of them. They said some things in the heat of passion, and it really ruined some things related to community and relationships. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Isn't it good to find that adult in the room who can say something at just the right time with just the right tone, and it will de- fuse a situation. It's just like psh, putting the fuse out on the dynamite and everybody calms down. I've seen that happen and I love it when we see that take place. I long to be strong enough in my own character that I could be that adult in the room. Sometimes I'm not. 
Sometimes I am. When I am, I feel good about it because I know that's the Holy Spirit at work in my life. But we need to learn how to build community and not destroy community with our anger. Somehow, I'm using this as an illustration because I've been to a bull riding competition one time, and it's a scary thing. You can see all that energy pent up in the chute as the rider gets on that bull before they open the gate. I kind of like to think of those angry words as the bull inside my mind, and it's still in the chute as long as I'm giving myself that wonderful check and balance. If there's something that keeps the chute closed, that's the Holy Spirit at work, keeping me in check and thinking, wait a minute, what am I about to say? Is it important enough for me to say it right now, or can I wait? If I do say it, what's going to be the result? That's keeping the chute closed. But the minute you let that word out, you let that chute open, it can do all kinds of damage. And so I have to try to use pictures in my own mind because I tend to think pictorially about those times when I'm starting to feel that pent up energy. And I think, uh oh, I don't want to let I don't want to let the bull out, so to speak. Well, anger is also destructive to wisdom itself. I don't know if you understand what happens, but it's almost like and I think Chuck Swindoll said this in a book years ago. If you let that shoot completely open and you let the bull out and it starts to tromp all over the place, including yourself, because that bull will turn around and tromp on the rider. Even though I think I'm in control and it feels powerful, a surge of power and adrenaline that's coming out of my mouth at the time I'm really angry, I have completely let loose all wisdom because there is no wisdom there. It's like temporary insanity for just a short period of time. A patient person shows great understanding, but a quick-tempered one promotes foolishness. Now, I used to struggle with anger a lot more than I do currently, and I'm grateful for that. I think that's a testimony that the Holy Spirit has been very patient with me and has continued to work in my life. I still struggle with it, but not to the extent that I did when I was younger. But there were times when I would let that shoot open and things would come out of my mouth and I would say some things that were just in the heat of passion. And immediately afterwards, as soon as I let that adrenaline off, I would think, oh man, I feel so foolish. You know why we feel foolish after we've let the shoot open? Because we were foolish. I felt like a fool because I was a fool. And the Bible says that. I'm not saying that. Anger is also addictive. There's something chemically in our brains that makes us feel temporarily powerful that's like a temporary fix. And if we get used to feeling that way, it can become an addictive substance just like any other addictive substance. And the truth is, anything that we do that's contrary to what God would be glorified with can become addictive in our life. All sin can become some form of addiction, including anger. And so we have to be very wary of that. What I'm saying is we need to be aware that all of us have this potential so that we can keep it from becoming an addictive substance. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty, rescue them, and you'll have to do it again and again and again. It seems that when children are young, we need to teach them the importance of reining in their anger and becoming constructive with that anger. I remember my wife was really good at this when our children were quite young. She would have three very simple rules for being angry. She'd say, it's okay to be angry. All of us get angry. But when you are angry, you're not allowed to hurt yourself. You're not allowed to hurt others. And you're not allowed to hurt things. 
You can express your anger. You can tell me how angry you are. You can stomp around all you want, but you can't hurt people or things. And I think as they started to process that, we started to see them taking a rein on their tongue and keeping the bull in the chute, so to speak. Appropriate anger is actually a good thing. And this is something that I really dived into a little more in detail this week in my study. And I'm excited about what I get to share with you because I think there's a lot of truth to it. And I think it's really affirming for all of us as well. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Notice that in this, there are a couple of things that are showing to us, but one is a little more subtle. The subtle truth in this scripture is the fact that it's okay to be angry. We're supposed to be angry at times, in fact, but he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. The Bible doesn't teach no anger. We don't see that. Jesus never stood on the Sermon on the Mount and say, don't ever be angry. He never said that. We don't see that in scripture. It teaches that we are supposed to be slow to anger. Why is that? It's because that's one of God's character qualities. And if we're made in his image and if we're supposed to be transformed into his likeness, we need to understand that there's good reason for anger. And if we're not angry at certain things, then we can even be sinning. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, deal with it quickly. Lay down your vengeance. Uh, if you have something that you're taking notes with, let me give you a great song to listen to. This just popped into my mind. Lay them down by need to breathe. You can find it on YouTube. It's a great song. We can even apply lay down your vengeance or your anger. He's talking about laying down your troubles, but one of my troubles comes because I'm angry. So I'm applying that to that song as well. And it's a fun song. So look it up. You can be angry and you can sin. Now this is the part that's a little bit strange. And I think it's very true. Or you cannot be angry and sin. There was an early church father and preacher and writer named John Chrysostom, and he wrote this. He that is angry without cause sins, but he that is not angry when there is cause sins. Ah, he captured it. He summarized the Bible teaching about anger so well in that one statement, because we understand that the opposite of not being angry can be indifferent. And if we're indifferent to something when there's injustice and we don't get angry about that injustice, if we're completely apathetic to that and we say, doesn't bother me, that's sin. We should be angry about certain things. Why is that? It's because we're made in the image of a God who is both loving and just. If we didn't have a God who was on our side and who wanted to fight our battles for us and to make things just again, I wouldn't want to serve a God like Mark 3 and the Sabbath healing. You probably remember this if you've been going to Sunday school for any length of time or if you've read through the New Testament. Jesus found himself on the Sabbath in front of a person who needed healing. And of course, he knew what was in the hearts of the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders who had completely twisted what the Sabbath was all about because they didn't understand God's character. They didn't understand that the reason for the Sabbath is so that we could be reminded who we are in comparison to who God is. They had transformed the Sabbath into something that would make them better than other people, and they could oppress them with their rigid man-made rules. It completely did away with what God had in mind for a true Sabbath. And Jesus had asked these leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath? 
to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it. And you know what they heard in response to that, to his question? They didn't respond at all. The Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, stood there with their mouths shut, probably grinding their teeth. And they didn't say a word because they couldn't answer that. And Jesus looked around at them and look at this. The scripture says this. Jesus looked around at those religious leaders in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Can you see that there is love and anger mixed together perfectly in this incident? That's important. There's a theological truth that we need to grasp from that. Because of our sin and because God is patient enough to wait until we can finally respond to his grace, Christ, in God's good time, took upon himself all the sins of every sinner so that justice would be paid. And he did that out of love, love and justice married together on the cross. It's an incredible concept. And Jesus modeled that for us as he lived on the earth, but then he purchased for us that same freedom on the cross so that now we can be transformed into his image and we can understand the difference between sinful wrath and righteous wrath. Moses on Mount Sinai gave us a clue going way back into the Old Testament because God himself revealed this slow to anger as being a part of God's character. Moses had gone up onto Mount Sinai. He was waiting for God to speak. Of course, we know that God was going to give him the Ten Commandments, which he brought back down to the people of Israel. But while he was on the mountain, God passed by him, and look what happens. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, ah, slow to anger, and filled with gracious love and truth. There's that big and right there, and filled with gracious love and truth. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. There is anger and grace and love and truth all bound together in this wonderful God of ours. And the fact that he is slow to anger doesn't mean that he is indifferent to the injustice of the world. It means that he's patient We can misinterpret his slowness as being indifference. It's not. He was not indifferent to the injustice in the world. And he is not going to be indifferent to the justice that will one day be meted out when Christ returns again. Maranatha, hallelujah, can I get an amen? All right. Many today say, I don't want to really serve an angry God. I want to serve a God of love. Now, on the surface, I get that. I understand that. You know, I look at the Old Testament, and there's some very difficult passages. There's some that, quite frankly, and I've admitted this at times, if I had been writing some of the Old Testament, inspired to write it, I would have said, God, are you sure you want this in there? I probably would not have wanted to put some of those passages in the Old Testament because they're hard to deal with. But they're there because they're truthful. And God knows what we need to know. We can trust him with absolute faith that if he's both loving and just, there's a reason why all those things are there for us in Scripture. All Scripture is profitable. Every bit of it, even the tough parts in the Old Testament. 
he's a God of love and he's a God of justice. And if he wasn't a God of love and justice, I wouldn't want to follow him. If you never get angry about anything, then you don't truly love anything. Think about that. Let that sink in for just a second. This is an important concept because it's a concept about God's character. If you never got angry about anything, then you wouldn't truly love anything. If you saw your child about to run out into the street and a speeding car was coming down the street toward your child, if you didn't get angry at that driver, you wouldn't truly love that child of yours. A lot of what we read in the Old Testament is God being angry because there were people about to destroy his people and he loved his people and he was angry at those other folks. Here's an action plan for being slow to anger. Now, I've preached about this several times before, so I'm going to kind of bullet statement my way through this fairly quickly. You can ask yourself, is this a minor irritation or is this something that's far more important? Because if it's only just a minor irritation, if that person sitting on the couch next to you decides that they're going to chew ice chips, let it go. Just let it go. It's not that big a deal. Or you could say, would you mind not chewing those ice chips? Because I'm trying to watch this TV show and I can hear that crunch. But you don't have to let that minor irritation become bigger in your mind than it really is. Second, what am I really angry about? I've noticed that sometimes if I'm shutting the door to that cabinet a little harder than I should, very often, it's not because I'm angry at the dishes that I just put in the cabinet. It's just an indicator that there's something else going on inside my spirit that I need to identify and figure out what is the unresolved conflict that I need to resolve. If I can resolve it, then I can make an action plan and I can contact that person that I need to talk with and maybe we can resolve it together. Or if I can't, if that becomes impossible, then I need to let it go. And I need to say, I'm going to forgive whatever that thing is that I'm not forgiving right now. Very often, that's the case for my unresolved conflicts is a little bit of unforgiveness because I've been hurt in some way. Third, or letter C, how can I display my anger in a proper way? We were trying to help our kids as they were growing up learn how to express themselves, and I'm very proud of them. I'm proud of you kids because they do a good job of expressing what they're feeling and why. And we would say, you can use your words what are you feeling right now? And it was important for us to get them to the point where they could do that. And it's a lot easier to see somebody else going through that and to tell them they need to use their words than it is for yourself. Sometimes it's the old beam in your own eye and the splinter in your neighbor's eye. But we can do that for ourselves. We can say, how can I display my anger and actually convey what I'm feeling and what I'm angry at? If I can say, I felt this way in that conflict that I experienced yesterday, and I think I was feeling disrespected. Maybe that's what's going on inside my mind right now. By even talking it out, it's like it just kind of de-escalates the situation. There's some power in learning how to speak those words out, and it takes the meter way, way down. And then check your tone. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I don't know about you, but when somebody has pointed something out in my life, and if they've been kind and compassionate, and I know that it hurts them because they know that their critique is going to hurt me, I know that they care about me. It's a lot easier to absorb that critique into my life from somebody that cares about me than somebody who's just making me feel like they're condescending to me, or they think they're better than I am, or they're rude or angry. 
there's something about our tone that can really make a difference in communicating truth, even when that truth is a difficult truth to share. And then don't let your anger stay with you. The Bible tells us, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Let it go. Let it go quickly. And don't hang on to it. Because the longer we nurse those things, the more we build up those feelings, the more we're going to eventually let that shoot open and we're going to let the bull out. And we don't want that to happen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. One of the things that we should be reminded of when we read scriptures, and especially this New Testament, is the fact that if Jesus did that for us, when we gave him good reason to be angry, and yet he transformed that wrath, taking care of justice by laying himself down for us. If he did that for us, certainly we ought to be able to lay down our own wrath for somebody else just to lay down our vengeance, let it go, forgive. Even though we may feel at the time like we need to retaliate or we need to do something to gain vengeance, vengeance is really up to God. It's not up to us. So we need to let that stuff go. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I recognize how easy it is for me to open the chute. <laughs> and I pray that you'll give me the kind of guard in my own tongue by helping me understand and process what I'm really feeling, understanding that feelings are a gift from you and they're there for good reason. Give me the intelligence and the compassion to be able to look back at the offenses that may have caused me to become irritated or angry and to put them in perspective. And then give me the grace to lay down vengeance when I need to, and to forgive as you have forgiven me. Help me to use all the feelings that you've given me to glorify you and to sense your smile when I'm putting you first in my life and when I'm exhibiting the Christ-like character qualities that are the fruit of the Spirit, which you also give to me. Thank you for all those gifts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.